Welcome to Legally Scaling, the podcast for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts seeking insights into the common legal challenges faced by scaling businesses. This podcast is brought to you by Ignition Law, a leading law firm for startups, scale-ups, and entrepreneurs. Today, we're going to discuss the disputes that startups most commonly face and how these can often be avoided. Talking us through this is our Head of Dispute Resolution, Tammy Evans. Tammy qualified in 2002 and since then has worked in contentious practices in the city, gaining extensive experience across a wide range of commercial litigation, mediation and arbitration on a national and international level. Tammy has represented clients in the High Court and Court of Appeal and before numerous arbitral bodies. Tammy, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Great to have you here. So my first question, it's what common disputes tend to come up for earlier stage startups and scale-ups? Okay, so what we see a lot of is shareholder disputes, particularly with scale-ups that have sort of reached that point where it's beyond an idea and they're starting to look at contracting with third parties and also particularly when they get to the investment stage. It's a sad reality that often ideas and, and harmonious relationships break down when those sort of points of pivot and crisis come. And when people are running a business, if they fall out, then the impact of that can be quite catastrophic. And that's probably one of the areas that we see most of with startups. If, for instance, you've got a situation where two people have started a company, they own 50% of the shares each, and a couple of years down the line, one of them isn't quite pulling their weight or one of them decides they want to leave. You've got a company that's, you know, progressed beyond its initial stages and can suddenly grind to a halt. Is it that that classic thing where the, the founders say to you, we didn't put any agreement in place because we thought we got on really well and everything was going to work really well. And then these unforeseen circumstances arise and suddenly dispute yeah, absolutely. We thought about it. We talked about it. We maybe sent an email about it, but nothing was ever quite put into place. What you have to then face is a situation where you can't compel the other shareholder to sell you their shares or transfer you their shares. You can't get investment into the company because an investor doesn't want you know, someone sitting on the cap table holding 50% of the shares and doing nothing. You're working like crazy to build up a company that you only own half of. And what you really need then when people come to us in that situation, what we're looking for is the the transfer provision, the provision that says, you know, if you stop working, then your shares will deemed to be transferred. And there's all sorts of uh, clauses that go with that transfer, such as, you know, the valuation of the shares, et cetera, um, and whether someone's a good lever or a bad lever. But the key is that there is some kind of mechanism you can work with in order to get some movement. Otherwise, you're left, you know, worst case scenario, you've got a company that cannot function at all because if both of those 50-50 shareholders are also directors, you have a board that can't function and a, and a company that basically breaks down. I guess because it reaches that that sort of deadlock and there's no documented way of getting out of it. Absolutely. And very few people, when they're starting a company up, envisage, oh, what would we do in the event of a deadlock? And, you know, the articles of association and any shareholders agreement that's put in place, um, really the purpose of those is to stress test all of these scenarios and provide you with avenues to go down should these events take place. 
I guess people get very carried away with all the exciting creative stuff involved at the very start of building a business and and the rest can seem like unnecessary admin when when everything's feeling really positive so um yeah definitely something to watch out for once that fun stuff has stopped and it starts to become about investment and you know it reaches a point where the company is taking on a life of its own that's the point when these stresses and disputes crop up quite often and by that stage it's too late to put these things into place because everyone's fallen out everyone hates each other you then can't agree on anything yes in the same way that like a marriage is always under more pressure when there are more stresses around (laughs) maybe the investors are like the children so shareholder disputes aside, just really briefly, what other types of disputes do earlier stage businesses tend to experience? Okay, so we also see disputes with um, suppliers and third parties, again, where people think that everything is, you know, you've, you've had a chat with this guy and you've, you've swapped a couple of emails and he's going to build you the website that you've always wanted. And then it turns out that, you know, what he produces isn't quite up to scratch, but there's nothing sort of properly documented to show what it is that you were expecting, nothing to show the the, the KPIs that you were expecting, nothing to show the standard and the quality that you wanted. It's super important that when you start to enter into these contracts with suppliers and for services and with customers and clients as well, that you properly document what everyone is doing, what everyone's obligations are, what everyone's rights are under those arrangements. And you properly sit down and you read the the terms and conditions that you're signing up to. Quite often we have situations where clients come to us and they've entered into an agreement which auto-renews, for instance, and has a really long auto-renew point. So it will be that, you know, the term of this contract is for a year. And unless you give us written notice on a certain date within a certain notice period, then it's going to auto-renew for another year. And that can be quite a tricky situation. The courts generally will expect businesses to read all of the terms and conditions that they sign up to. And they're extremely unlikely to consider that these clauses are unreasonable if businesses have been given the opportunity to read them and agreed to them. Yeah, I guess there's a different threshold a lot of the time when it's business to business as opposed to business to consumer. So more of an onus to read that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people don't necessarily always understand that when they're starting up a business. And on the, the customer side, do you, do you see many disputes where uh, a business has not been paid by its customers or customers are, are querying whether they've been sent the right stuff and, and we're representing, I guess, either side of a dispute like that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, cash flow is king for, for startups and it's really important that that cash flow is monitored very carefully. Otherwise, it can very quickly spiral out of control, particularly where you have just a couple of large contracts that really you, you've started out with and is the meat of your business. If anything goes wrong with those and, and getting the, the sums paid under those, then the, the business can really start to get into trouble. And dialogue is always really important in those situations, I think. Keep talking, keep the channels of communication open and keep monitoring it. Keep an eye on um, any unpaid invoices. Make sure that they're chased up often and try not to stick your head in the sand about things like that. I guess it's that challenge of a business sort of wanting to balance maintaining a good reputation and maintaining good relationships alongside that need for cash flow. And if the scales tip towards cash flow issues, that's when 
businesses might be a lot more motivated to pursue a dispute. Um, but I'm guessing in the first instance, you want to avoid a formal dispute or court proceedings at, at all costs. Is that right? Yeah, it's um, entering into any kind of dispute action is, a, you know, it can be quite a drain on a startup. It's something that we always work very hard with our clients to put them in a position where they don't have to do that. It can be a big drain on manpower. It can be a drain on resources as well. So it's always best to push for an early resolution of things. And that's something we focus on a great deal. And on that note, I mean, how costly can some of these disputes be? I realise it's like saying how long is a piece of string, but um, I'm guessing it can really rack up. Yeah, it it really can. Even if you're taught, let's take a a reasonably small debt claim, for instance. Let's say you're, you're owed 50K. You're not going to get that to trial for less than 50K, probably, in terms of legal fees. So you're then in a position where you're paying 50K. And yes, you can recover your legal fees if you're successful, but the court is extremely unlikely to award you 100% of those legal fees. Really, you're looking at 70 to 80% of them. And you're talking about a year of your time and energy. And as, you know, as delightful as we are at Ignition, people still don't want to talk to us about a matter that they wanted to resolve six months ago. It can sometimes stretch people's patience. Yeah, I guess people often forget to take into account the opportunity cost of of hours within the business needed to input into these disputes. We make it as pain-free as possible. And sometimes there are times when it just cannot be avoided and you have to then, you know, buckle down to it and, and get it sorted. And that's very much what we do. But if there is a way of resolving it without going through that process, it's certainly worth considering. Well, that actually leads me on perfectly to my next question. How are some of these disputes resolved if they don't reach court? Um, Well, quite often with some kind of settlement. If there is a middle ground that can be reached, for instance, sometimes that's giving people some time to pay things if it is a case of of a debt matter. Shareholders' disputes, well, it's that really is dependent on the particular situation. Sometimes it is a case of people will agree to reduce their shareholding to a certain number. Sometimes it's a case of, you know, they will walk away with a certain payment. Sometimes it's a case of they won't walk away and the the company has to proceed with that shareholder in place. We try to be as creative as we can in terms of the pressures that can be brought to bear on that situation. And, you know, shareholders have varying rights depending on what percentage of shares they own in the company if that person is a director also they owe duties to the company so we think about derivative actions and when there's been a whether there's potentially been a breach of any director's duties we look at whether or not that shareholder is an employee is there any employment right or restrictions that can be utilized and obviously in an ideal world there's a shareholders agreement providing for transfer of shares upon breakdown of the relationship etc so i guess you can never really give much of an indication of timescale until you started to look at all the documentation and the evidence depending on the context yeah it's it's very fact specific and you know also you sometimes find yourself veering into the territory of looking at statutory protections and unfair prejudice claims and you know minority shareholder protections and 
they can take quite a while to resolve, particularly if if court action is required. Sometimes just having a claim issued can push the parties to an early settlement of it. Sometimes you need to take that step of commencing court action and people then start to kind of knuckle down and talk about the settlement options in a little bit more detail. Uh, So sometimes the counterparty isn't really taking it seriously um, and it takes instructing a lawyer and issuing the the claim form for them to realise actually I need to start taking this dispute seriously and that forces them to engage um, and, and that helps to reach a settlement. Yeah, it it can certainly help to crystallise people's thinking and, you know, bring people to the table. So do you have any particularly horrible examples you've worked on that you can talk to us about, I guess, you know, cautionary tales that that bring some life to to all this? Um, I have worked with startups that were at that point of investment where they have investors literally knocking on their door offering money and at that point the cap table starts to be looked at in more detail and there is a 50% shareholder who refuses to sell their shares but is doing nothing in the company at that time and investors walk away because that situation can't be resolved. Now that company is left pretty much floundering because there are various restrictions on just starting again that shareholder who owns the 50% has rights and those rights will often prevent the company's assets from being transferred out into a new co etc you can't really just start up a new company and and try and circumvent the old 50% shareholder you know there are statutory protections that prevent you from doing that and sadly that's a situation that we see often and when you do go through to court and you win a case. Are there still issues at that point that can arise, I guess, in terms of enforcement or the other party suddenly disappearing or still refusing to pay? Yes. Yeah. Um, but we do always try and think about enforcement before we start an action. It's one of the key early considerations because there is absolutely no point in us. Say we are talking about a debt claim. There's absolutely no point in us starting an action against a company, for instance, if the company does not have sufficient assets that you could enforce any judgment that you get against. Even if the client is successful and even if the client secures a judgment plus payment of their legal fees that they've spent, if they then can't get the actual cash in the door, then there's no point in having the judgment in the first place. Um, so yes, enforcement can be a big issue. Okay, so it's that pragmatism that, that you also need to take into account at the start as well. To finish up on the disputes-related questions, like what are some of the things that clients can do to avoid these types of disputes arising in the first place? I know we touched on it earlier, but um, it'd be good to have a, a little rundown. The key is to make sure that you document the arrangements that deal with your internal and your external relationships. Um, I mean, it's not guaranteed that if you put a shareholders or a founders agreement in place, it can, you know, prevent any disputes arising, but it certainly helps as and when they do. And it also does have some kind of deterrent effect because people know where they stand from the start and they know what's expected of them. And that can help, you know, govern people's behavior. These agreements, they're legal documents and they're negotiated And that sort of exercise in itself can really help to flush out any early issues. 
So we would definitely recommend putting in place documents that govern your internal relationships like a shareholders agreement or a founders agreement. It, it is a bit like having a prenup. And you can also, within those documents, you can specifically set out how you will deal with disputes, which if you have a 50-50 startup is incredibly important because those stalemates can be very debilitating. You can build in provisions as to how that any deadlock would be res resolved. And you can also start to look at what would happen if someone was to leave or someone was to die or someone was to make, be made bankrupt and have provisions in there, which ensure that reverse vesting kicks in. You can also ensure that there are restrictions in place, which really stop what shareholders can do once they have left and start talking about starting up competing businesses and providing they're reasonable and they protect the interests of the startup. Those restrictions can be enforced against people that exit. And in terms of third party suppliers, really what you're looking at is making sure that you document all of the arrangements reached with people that are you know, providing you with services, making sure that you read all of the terms and conditions that go with those services and really take care over the contracts that the business entered into because they, you know, they do underpin the structure of your company. Make sure it's all recorded in writing, take advice when necessary, you know, think about how the contracts can be terminated, think about how they're how long they're going to run for, think about whether or not they will auto-renew. If the timing of performance under the contract is essential, then think about making time of the essence and think about the dispute resolution clauses within them. Also, you can have kind of staged mechanisms for dealing with the disputes that arise under a contract. Think about your limitation of liability. Think about what loss might be recoverable in the event that something goes wrong. Just basically give them all a some proper thought as you said earlier it's too easy at the outset of a relationship where everything's positive everyone's optimistic to just sort of get on with things and what you have to just take a beat and do is think about what happens if this goes wrong it doesn't have to take up a considerable amount of your time or resource in in putting those things in place but it's incredibly important and it's basically safeguarding your business Totally. Essentially, hope for the best, but at least have a backup plan for the worst. Um, it's interesting with me working on the on the commercial and the employment side. We have early stage clients all the time asking for like, very short and simple agreements. I think a lot of the time it's because they don't want to feel like they're putting the counterparty out. And we have to explain to them what can go wrong if we miss out certain aspects of the contract. But you know, if you are precise and comprehensive and unambiguous, that can be a much better safety net if things go wrong in the future and, and really reduce the, the chance of a dispute arising. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn out, tedious, expensive process. It really doesn't. And if it is turning into that, then um, think about who your lawyers are, because it shouldn't be and it doesn't need to be. And it's also, you know, a, re a really good way of you know, learning about what all these provisions that you sign up to mean. Absolutely. So to finish up, we've got one final question. Tell me what advice would you give your 18 year old self? I think don't panic. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I remember being quite panicked a lot when I was about 18. Um, but everything's possible, really. Push the boundaries, believe in yourself, believe in what you want to do. 
it's the same advice I'd give my daughter really, which is, you know, be what you want to be and believe in that person. Wonderful. Well, I'll be leaving this recording feeling inspired. Um, Tammy, thank you so much for speaking to us today. And thanks to everyone who has tuned in to listen. But where appropriate, as Tammy alluded to, we give proactive advice to help clients avoid disputes altogether. But unfortunately, some issues are unavoidable, which is when our focus turns to achieving the best outcome possible. Ignition Law has extensive experience advising scale-ups and SMEs on the full spectrum of commercial disputes, including international disputes spanning multiple jurisdictions. And this can include everything from negotiating settlements right the way through to high court hearings. If you have any questions, get in touch via www.ignition.law. Until next time.